Content warning. The following episode includes discussion of miscarriage, stillbirth, medical procedures, death, child molestation, and sexual and physical violence. Listener discretion is advised. A lot of people don't know this about me, though more people will now, but that's okay. When I was in my early 20s, I was diagnosed with a hormonal condition that, among other things, makes it more difficult to get pregnant, increases the chance of miscarriage if pregnant, and if untreated, can lead to infertility. People who know this tend to think that someone like myself would begrudge women who can and do get pregnant deciding to have an abortion. After all, it would be hard for me to have a baby, but there are others who might not have the same difficulty, but choose not to carry a pregnancy to term. But you would be wrong. See, I am acutely aware that reproduction is very personal. It has to do with your body, your health, and your life, and as such should be between you and your doctor. Pregnancy is not some trivial thing, and the government should not be involved in regulating it beyond regulating women's health and safety, regardless of whether or not a pregnancy takes place, or whether a pregnancy ends in live birth, miscarriage or stillbirth, or voluntary termination. The greatest freedom is the freedom of consent, and that freedom should be unrestricted. If the government makes abortion illegal, this action is telling women we do not have the right to make decisions regarding our own bodies if it involves reproduction. If the government can force you to give birth, it can also force you to terminate your pregnancy. And with the increasing influence of the Christian right in the United States, this is the government we are bound to have. I am your host. Jay Poole, and this is Pat Stirrer Podcast. Last year, I discussed the issue of abortion in a two-part series, Moralism Without Sacrifice, episodes 21 and 22 and then touched on it again in episode 32, If Roe Goes, when I discussed the choice of Brett Kavanaugh to be U.S. Supreme Court Justice. In episode 32 in particular, I discussed the possibility that Roe v. Wade, the 1973 U.S. Supreme Court decision that essentially made abortion legal across all 50 states, will be struck down by the current court, which is moving further and further to the right with each court pick Donald Trump gets. And that appears to be turning into our reality. Nine states have recently passed laws that place extreme restrictions on abortion, including bans after six weeks, and in some cases, near total bans. Many of these bans, including Ohio and Alabama, do not include provisions for rape or incest. And some include steeper penalties for abortion providers than for rapists. And in Georgia, their abortion ban includes legal penalties for pregnant women seeking abortion. Six other states are considering similar laws. In Indiana, 
fetal remains are required to be buried or cremated, whether the fetus was voluntarily terminated or was spontaneously terminated through miscarriage. So, if a woman has a miscarriage, which she may not want to go out and tell everybody, if she doesn't make arrangements for it as if it were already born, she could go to jail. Stranger Still, which is another awesome podcast on Flying Machine, posted a video on YouTube recently getting more into the specifics of how these ultra-restrictive abortion laws came to be written and who was behind them. I highly encourage you to check that out. I'll link to it in the show notes. The bottom line with these abortion bans is this. These bans are not placing the life of the fetus as equal to that of the woman carrying it. It is reducing women to human incubators. This is not simply a life issue. And by the way, the label pro-life is a marketing term. And I'm no longer going to use it going forward to refer to those who oppose legalized abortion access. Anti-abortion, pro-birth, pro-forced birth, those work, but pro-life is a lie. I'll get more into why that's a lie later. But in any case, this is not a life issue. This is a freedom issue, or lack thereof. The fight to overturn Roe v. Wade is about restricting women's bodily autonomy as part of evangelical Christian theocracy. It's about forcing women to live according to their doctrinal beliefs in a representative democracy. It is also about filling the prisons and supporting the prison industrial complex. This is about money. And there is nothing about the so-called pro-life movement that has anything to do with supporting life. Now, before I get into the freedom aspect of this current attack against abortion, I want to address something here. Hot Stirrer Podcast has existed for two years, and over time, I have stood fast on most of my opinions, but have shifted on a few. Many of you have been here as I've used this vehicle to think and talk through my faith journey, having gone from being an evangelical Christian with liberal views on many issues to estranged from evangelicalism, to a still Christian ex-evangelical. Abortion is another, though on a smaller scale. And this is something I kind of want to address right now. And it's not really that my views on abortion itself have changed. But for the past several years, I've seen myself as morally pro-life, meaning I don't foresee myself getting an abortion under most circumstances, but legally pro-choice meaning it's not a decision I feel I should make for other people. Over my lifetime, I have known a number of women who have had abortions, and the reasons they have chosen to terminate their pregnancies are varied and complex. But I think that over time, from studying what the Bible itself says about abortion, which really isn't much, to conversations with people who oppose abortion for religious and non-religious reasons, I feel that my current position on abortion has become more solidified and consistent while acknowledging the complexity of the issue. While I am still pro-choice, where I have changed my view is on the status of the fetus. In last year's two-parter Moralism Without Sacrifice, I discussed my view that I believed life began at conception, but that I was still pro-choice. Now, in retrospect, I think that view is maybe a bit inconsistent, and after considering it some more, 
I don't believe the personhood of the fetus really holds water. What is clear-cut is the dividing line between pregnancy and birth. And I'll give both faith and non-faith-based reasons for where I now stand regarding fetal personhood. First of all, let's talk about faith-based reasons. While many evangelical Protestants, Roman Catholics, and other conservative Christians argue that their faith leads them to an anti-abortion stance, it seems that such a view isn't supported by scripture. The Bible does talk about the fetus and about abortion. The fetus has value, but is not equal to born, breathing life. Exodus 21 orders that a fine be levied if a pregnant woman is made to miscarry as the result of an attack, but that the death penalty be prescribed if the woman is killed. Numbers 5 outlines a procedure that amounts to abortion in the case of suspected adultery, which, by the way, is not viewed as a valid reason to abort a fetus by pretty much anyone in the anti-abortion movement. And in many places, including the creation stories in the book of Genesis, the Bible speaks to life beginning at first breath, not at conception. Now, many anti-abortion Christians cite the commandment, Thou shalt not kill, along with Jeremiah 1.5 to support their position. Jeremiah 1.5 states, quote, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations, end quote. But if you look at this further, this specific passage is poetry, and it exists to illustrate God's calling for a specific person, Jeremiah, to become a prophet. It does not speak broadly to fetal personhood. The fetus has value, but is it a full-fledged person that falls under the commandment, thou shalt not kill? If it is, support for that take in the Bible is nowhere to be found. Up until the late 1970s and early 1980s, with the rise of the religious right, many Protestant leaders, including evangelicals, didn't take this anti-abortion stance either. Up until that time, the only major religious group in the United States that was stridently and consistently opposed to abortion were Roman Catholics. The evangelical reaction to Roe v. Wade in 1973 was not particularly vociferous and mixed at best. For example, W.A. Criswell, who had previously been president of the Southern Baptist Convention, said right after the decision, quote, I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. And it has always, therefore, seemed to me that what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed, end quote. Fundamentalist televangelist and terrible human, Jerry Falwell Sr. said nothing of the decision until the late 1970s. And in the Baptist press, writer W. Barry Garrett wrote, quote, Religious liberty, human equality, and justice are advanced by the Supreme Court abortion decision, end quote. Now, it's not to say that no evangelical voices sent anything that can be taken as anti-abortion at that time. The National Association of Evangelicals said at the time, quote, we deplore, in the strongest possible terms, the decision of the U.S. Supreme Court, which has made it legal to terminate a pregnancy for no better reason than personal convenience or sociological considerations, end quote. 
thing is, there was no abortion-based litmus test among evangelicals regarding abortion until it became the key issue championed by the religious right in the late 70s and early 80s, and it was simply because it was a more universal, palatable issue than support for racially segregated schools. While I'm sure there are many anti-abortion Christians who sincerely believe in their position, how it became such a key rallying point among evangelicals is rooted in opportunism, not morality. So now let's talk about some non-religious reasons for personhood at birth. Let me give you a hypothetical that is relatively realistic. Anna is eight years old. She's a lovely girl, a ball of energy, and has a full life ahead of her. Or so it seems. But then she starts wearing down. And this alarms her adoptive parents. So they bring her into the hospital. The doctors run tests, and they find out that Unfortunately, Anna's liver is failing. It's not her fault. She didn't do anything wrong. No one did anything wrong. It's just the luck of the draw. She needs a transplant, and livers can be obtained through a living donor. And if a healthy donor donates part of their liver to help Anna, there are medical risks, and they would have to endure recovery time but long-term effects are generally short-lived since healthy livers regenerate to normal size after two months. Problem is that Anna doesn't have time to waste. If she isn't mashed with a donor liver within six months, she will die. Well, come to find out, Anna has a rare blood type and rare enzymes, and she has a lot of difficulty being matched with a donor, whether it's a living or dead donor. The only person they're able to find that's a match for her in this short period of time is her birth mother, who hasn't been in Anna's life since she gave her up for adoption. Now here's the thing. Anna's birth mother, after being identified as a match, changes her mind and decides she doesn't want to go through the procedure. Even though this refusal is a death sentence for Anna, her birth mother cannot be forced to undergo donor surgery to save her life. Now, maybe you and I can judge Anna's birth mother for saying no until the cows come home. And I haven't given a reason why Anna's birth mother refuses to provide the liver tissue, and really it doesn't matter. Regardless of the reason, Anna's birth mother is within her right to say no. We may look at this hypothetical example, and it sounds horrible, but let's look at the reality. According to the American Transplant Foundation, 114,000 people in the U.S. are on the waiting list for a life-saving organ transplant, yet an average of 20 people die daily from a lack of available organs for transplant. Liver disease and kidney disease, diseases that can be alleviated by living donors, cause the deaths of over 120,000 people a year, more than Alzheimer's disease, breast cancer, or prostate cancer. And a lot of suffering can be alleviated if more healthy people decided to become organ donors, whether living donors or donors upon death. 
but despite the immense benefit to those who need healthy organs to save their lives. We do not require that individuals become organ donors. And there is no concerted movement coming from either the left or the right to make this happen. Why not? A couple of key freedoms, and arguably the most important freedoms we have, are the right to autonomy and bodily integrity. Autonomy meaning having the right to govern the self based on one's own considerations, desires, and interests. Bodily integrity meaning the right to self-determination over one's own body. Taken together, we're talking about the freedom to make choices regarding one's own self, from the right to say no to sexual contact, to the right to say yes or no to undergoing medical studies and treatment. This is the right to consent. This right is so important that we don't even violate it upon death. We consider a will that states what happens to a person's body upon death to be legally binding. If a person wants to be buried upon death, we do our best to bury them as long as their estate has the money to do so. If they want to be cremated, same thing. If they want to donate their body to science, they can as long as a medical facility consents to receive them. Not all bodies are fair game for organ donation upon death, not even bodies that are healthy and suitable to be used as donors, because it requires consent. Consent over what happens to one's own self, living or dead, rooted in the rights of autonomy and bodily integrity, is sacrosanct. Now, when it comes to pregnancy, the question is, at what point does the woman's right to consent get usurped by the fetus's right to same? I would argue never, and here's why. Many who oppose abortion argue that the decision is made regarding pregnancy at the point of sex, and consent to sex means consent to any possibilities that may arise from the act, including pregnancy, meaning that more often than not, a decision is made by a woman and a man to engage in an act that can result in pregnancy. We can very briefly consider other risks from sex, such as sexually transmitted infections, which I would imagine that except for the most hardline Pence-type conservatives, most would be in favor of participants in sexual activity having access to frontline protection or treatment for STIs if exposed. STIs are a risk from sex, but few would say that consenting to sex means consenting to contracting gonorrhea or HIV. Being aware of the risks is not the same as consenting to all possible outcomes. So that argument is, I think, a bit silly. But let's focus specifically on pregnancy. Pregnancy entails a fetus being housed inside a woman or a girl, using her blood, liquids, nutrients, etc., to grow until which point it can thrive outside the woman's body. This condition occurs with the continuous consent of the woman who is carrying the fetus. The woman or girl has the right to change her mind at any point. When we look at the right to consent, this right does not bleed over into compelling someone else to do something. So, for example, a patient can consent to cataract surgery, but they can't force the doctor to perform the surgery. If the doctor doesn't think it's a good idea, the patient can't make them do it. Same with the transplant hypothetical I gave earlier. Anna's consent to have a liver transplant doesn't mean she can compel her birth mother to give up part of her liver. The right to consent can also be revoked at any time. 
A survey participant can say yes to answering questions and then withdraw part of the way through. An adult can consent to sexual activity, then change their mind and say no at any point or say no to certain sexual acts. There is no such thing as a decision regarding one's own body implying continuous consent. If we do not have the right to force other people to use their bodies to preserve the lives of those whose personhood is not in question, we also do not have the right to compel a woman or girl to use her body as a vessel for a growing fetus. And while I do believe a fetus has value, it is not a person in a sense that it is not autonomous and cannot live independently of the woman for most of the pregnancy's duration. Its right to live does not trump a woman or girl's right to give or withhold consent. There is no obligation to host a fetus. That said, can one believe that providing continuous consent by choosing to carry a pregnancy to term is a great thing? Sure, definitely. Again, I do believe the fetus has value, but at no point does the woman give up her autonomy for nine months due to an earlier decision. Your right to consent doesn't change due to a presence of risk for a decision made at an earlier point in time. The right to autonomy and bodily integrity, being able to control the self and what happens to your own body, are the most important and core rights humans have. And we're not even talking about situations when a woman or a child has their autonomy stripped from them, violated through sexual assault, and never at any point made a decision. Some of the current laws on the books violate the right to consent of women and girls whose right to consent has already been violated. So it is a violation of essential rights on so many levels, simply because of our increasingly theocratic government viewing women and minor girls as human incubators with no right to consent. And here's the thing, even though people who are anti-abortion would say they believe full-fledged personhood begins at conception, deep inside, I would contend they don't truly believe that either. Under the vast majority of circumstances, consensual and non-consensual, women and girls don't get pregnant by themselves. Men, or boys, play a part too. Yet, there are no laws adjoining these abortion bans that require men responsible for impregnating women pay child support during the pregnancy, pay for half the OBGYN visits, or other expenses arising from pregnancy. Child support doesn't start until after the child is born, and these abortion bans haven't changed that. Fetuses can't be claimed as dependents for tax purposes and are not enumerated in the census. These bans haven't changed that either. But Jay, what about fetal homicide laws? If you can get charged for two murders for killing a pregnant woman, that means we do see a fetus as a person and abortion is murder, right? Right? Okay, so let's back up a little bit. Pregnant women as a population are particularly vulnerable to violent crime, including murder. While there is not much in the way of generalizable data captured on the reproductive status of murdered women, smaller population studies have indicated that homicide is the leading cause of death among pregnant women and is often tied to existing domestic violence. In response to this, fetal homicide laws are on the books in 38 states. Essentially, this means that if a pregnant woman is murdered and the fetus dies along with the woman, 
the perpetrator can be charged and convicted of double homicide by counting the death of the fetus as a separate murder charge. These laws are a relatively new phenomenon, many of them being passed only in the last 10 or 15 years. And much of the controversy behind them when they were enacted has to do with the status of legal personhood provided to the fetus for the sake of these fetal homicide laws. The concern by pro-choice activists being that this status can open the door for abortion bans. Alternative laws in eight other states address the murder of pregnant women by including pregnancy as a penalty enhancement or aggravating circumstance, centering the vulnerability of these women rather than elevating the fetus to personhood. While fetal homicide laws do include exceptions for abortion, the concern seems to have some validity, as some will use the existence of these laws as an argument that the government already views the fetus as a person. But considering the situations where the fetus is still legally considered a non-person, fetal homicide laws only demonstrate how inconsistent and ambiguous our laws are regarding the status of the fetus. And the anti-abortion movement has made it that way. Because for them, the core of the abortion message isn't really life at all. It's to trumpet meaningless symbolism. The idea being to send a message by controlling other people and taking away their rights, particularly women, without doing anything of substance to preserve actual life. One thing we need to remember is this. If government is given the power to force women to remain pregnant, it also has the power to force women to terminate their pregnancies. We can look no further than Trump's ride-or-die world partner, Kim Jong-un of North Korea. Kim's regime is responsible for, among so many other human rights violations, forcing women in their prisons to have abortions, despite having laws on the books outlawing abortion. If government can outlaw abortion, it can force abortion. If government can outlaw abortion, it can force abortion because both are violations of a woman's right to consent regarding her own body. Consent is everything, and that right does not end at conception. While my stance on the status of a fetus has shifted some since last year, I think it's still important to consider that the status of a fetus is a complex question for many Americans, one that involves science philosophy, and religion, and there is no consensus on this. But even if we want to say that the fetus has some value, whether it is a full person equal to the life of the woman sustaining it, or it has value on some other level, one question I have asked pretty consistently when discussing abortion, and I think this is important, is this. Is the goal of how we address abortion to preserve life or to punish women? Or in other words, hold women responsible. One can easily say both, but when we look at the big picture, this does not bear out in reality. Right now, the energy of the anti-abortion movement is completely behind banning abortion. While some abortion ban supporters say, we'll overturn Roe and then revisit the harshness of these laws, there is no reason to believe them. Because that is not how laws work. There is no reason for them to go back and roll anything back to assuage the losers because they will have won. If Roe is overturned in full or in any significant way, a death of many cuts, and these laws stand, there will be real people impacted by these laws. Women jailed for having miscarriages, 
doctors, and pregnant women and girls, made to serve prison sentences longer than some violent criminals. Little girls forced to carry pregnancies by child molesters to term. Rapists who will have parental rights. And really, we don't have to wait for this type of impact because it's already happening. Our right-wing theocratic government and those who support it have focused on the goal of punishment pretty thoroughly. But what about the goal of protecting and preserving life? Well, the maternal mortality rate in the United States is the highest in the developed world. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has noted that women in the United States are more likely to die from childbirth or pregnancy-related causes than other women in developed countries, and half of these deaths are preventable. According to analysis of data from the CDC, a team of scholars led by Marion F. McDormand estimate that the mortality rate for 48 states plus Washington, D.C. increased by almost 27%, from 18.8 deaths per 100,000 live births in 2000 to 23.8 deaths per 100,000 live births in 2014. California and Texas were analyzed separately. The maternal mortality rate in Texas suddenly increased in a period of 2011 through 2012, while California's maternal mortality rate declined. It seems that California isn't so bad, guys. But overall, the findings suggest that maternal mortality in the U.S. is rising, while the overall international trend is dropping. And for Black women in particular, the risk of death from pregnancy and childbirth is even higher. According to a thoroughly cited report by the National Partnership for Women and Families, Black women are more than three times more likely than white women to experience a pregnancy-related death and more likely to experience maternal death due to preventable causes. And it's not simply a matter of poverty, as Black women's increased risk spans income and education levels. Tennis star Serena Williams recounted her experience after giving birth in September of 2017. According to an article in Vogue magazine, Williams had an emergency cesarean section after her heart rate dropped to dangerously low levels while having contractions. While the birth itself was a success, what happened after was horrifying. From the article, quote, The next day, while recovering in the hospital, Serena suddenly felt short of breath. Because of her history of blood clots, and because she was off her daily anticoagulant regimen due to the recent surgery, she immediately assumed she was having another pulmonary embolism. Serena lives in fear of blood clots. She walked out of the hospital room so her mother wouldn't worry and told the nearest nurse, between gasps, that she needed a CT scan with contrast and IV heparin, a blood thinner, right away. The nurse thought her pain medicine might be making her confused. But Serena insisted, and soon enough, a doctor was performing an ultrasound of her legs. I was like, a Doppler? I told you, I needed a CT scan and a heparin drip. She remembers telling the team. The ultrasound revealed nothing, so they sent her for the CT, and sure enough, several small blood clots had settled in her lungs. Minutes later, she was on the drip. End quote. But her ordeal was not over. Quote, her fresh C-section wound popped open from the intense coughing spells caused by the pulmonary embolism, 
and when she returned to surgery, they found a large hematoma had flooded her abdomen. The result of a medical catch-22 in which the potentially life-saving blood thinner caused hemorrhaging at the site of her C-section. She returned yet again to the OR to have a filter inserted into a major vein in order to prevent more clots from dislodging and traveling into her lungs, end quote. Serena Williams has sought to use her experience to amplify the need to address the issue of worse health outcomes for Black women giving birth. According to the article in National Partnership for Women and Families, hospitals that serve predominantly Black women have higher rates of maternal mortality than other hospitals. Also, 22% of Black women report discrimination when going to a doctor or clinic, and almost 30% of workplace pregnancy discrimination complaints have been filed by Black women who only make up 14% of women aged 16 to 54 in the workplace. And when it comes to reproductive choice, Black women tend to have less access to quality contraceptive care and counseling than white or Latino women, are less likely to be insured, and they bear the brunt of existing abortion restrictions. And this doesn't even include the ones currently being enacted to trigger a Roe reversal. The governments of these states, being run by extremist theocrats, want to force women to give birth under the guise of protecting life while not addressing the real risks pregnancy poses to women and girls and the toll it takes on their bodies to the point that it's deadlier to give birth here in the United States than anywhere else in the developed world. And not only they don't care all that much about the women they're forcing to be human incubators, they're not all that concerned with actual children either. Infant mortality rates in the U.S. are 71% higher than comparable developed countries and has declined more slowly than these other countries. The main difference between the U.S. and these other countries, such as Canada, the U.K., Austria, Germany, and many others, is that these other countries have some form of nationalized health care, while the U.S. does not. While there are many other measures we can use as to whether or not nationalized health care is better than the mostly privatized patchwork system we have in the U.S., if those running our country and the anti-abortion activists supporting them want to say, let's not kill the babies, we want them to live. By this measure, you would think more of them would be in support of nationalized health care with significantly better outcomes for the babies they say should have a shot at life. But that's clearly not the case. Anti-abortion activists have made black babies in particular pawns in their fight to end abortion by pointing to higher abortion rates among black women as the genocide of black babies. This is as if black women are not capable of making decisions regarding their own reproduction, given the same access to information and options. It's a very paternalistic take. Yet these same activists have no interest in keeping black women alive while giving birth to the black babies they claim to care so much about. And they really don't care all that much about black babies either. Black infant mortality in the U.S. is more than twice as high as white, Asian, and Latino infant mortality, and the highest among all racial and ethnic categories in the U.S. And is there anything on the table to be done about this? Nope. The Save the Black Babies take has nothing to do with any true concern for Black people at all. It's a way to signal to the public that they're not really racist, while in reality supporting existing conditions and policies that lead to racially skewed outcomes, including death is PR. 
And sure, many anti-abortion white evangelicals in particular are concerned about a future reality where white people are in the numerical minority here in the U.S., which I talk about more in depth in an earlier episode, Onward Christian Soldiers, episode 39. Check that out if you want to learn more about that. But it's not like they care all that much about white children either. Unless it's their own kids, and only if those kids live by their religious standards. In 2018, there were 82 school shootings, the highest since 1970, when statistics were first recorded on these incidents, and with the deadliest outcomes, 165 casualties, including 56 people killed. There are a number of conditions leading to this, including immense poverty and lack of economic opportunity in urban and rural areas, the rise of white supremacist radicalization and terror, and the lack of access to comprehensive mental health services across the country, none of which are being addressed by those who claim to care about life. They sometimes will give lip service to mental health, but refuse to go beyond, oh, that shooter was crazy. These issues, poverty, white supremacy, lack of mental health services, are also root causes in many other mass shootings in this country, at concerts and nightclubs, on city streets, at workplaces and government buildings, and yes, even at churches and other houses of worship. So prayer ain't gonna fix this. The problem isn't that God is being kept out of the public arena, or that society has rejected Christianity. Most Americans identify as Christian, and this opportunistic persecution narrative is laughable. But at the same time, I wouldn't even say it's a problem with assault weapons necessarily. A lot is made about rifles such as AR-15s, but handguns are most often the gun of choice for mass shootings. And while I get the focus on gun control by moderates and progressives, in an encroaching authoritarian government that is fully in support of a police state that kills civilians with impunity and without accountability, I sincerely believe the last thing we need is to entrust our protection to this very government. One other issue that comes up is that many anti-abortion advocates, especially evangelical Christian advocates, tend to support. The core problem is that there is an outright refusal by our increasingly theocratic government and those who support it to do anything of substance to produce a healthy society that leads to healthy, truly pro-life outcomes for its citizens. One other issue that comes up is that many anti-abortion advocates, especially evangelical Christian advocates, tend to support faith-based charity as the best vehicle for providing social services to those who need it. They'll often point to the statistic that Republicans are more likely to give to charitable organizations than Democrats, but giving to charity doesn't necessarily lead to better outcomes. Stranger still released a podcast episode about nonprofit organizations back in April. It wasn't specifically about faith-based charities, but Nick and John do discuss how nonprofits vary in the percentage of donations and resources that are allocated towards their stated cause. Definitely, definitely check that out. Now, besides the fact that charities vary in what actually goes to the people who need help, there are a couple other reasons why relying on charities to fix these widespread societal issues is a terrible approach. Faith-based charities are not large enough in scope to fully address the needs of millions of people who need help across the country. Relying solely on charity will lead to coverage gaps. Government is much more comprehensive 
with more financial and organizational resources and can better reach more people. But Jay, charities can't fix the problem because we pay so much in taxes. If the government would stop stealing our paychecks, we could give more to charity. We live in a civil society that needs money to run the basic services we take for granted. Roads, bridges, and other infrastructure. The health inspectors who make sure we don't get sick from the food we get at the local grocery store. And the safety inspectors who try to ensure your toddler won't choke on their birthday presents. Part of living in a civil society is paying for it. Optimally according to one's means. Nothing is free. Taxes are not stealing. Anyway, the golden days that many conservatives point to as the best time in our country, the 1950s, included a 90% tax rate on the wealthiest Americans. 90%. In comparison, in 2018, the highest tax rate was 37%. So over the past 60 to 70 years, the tax burden, particularly on the wealthy, has fallen significantly. The idea that more money would go to charity if we weren't taxed so much is bullshit. The other problem with relying on faith-based charity is that as it is faith-based, they are able to exercise their own criteria on who they will and will not help and how much. Healthcare sharing ministries, where those who sign up share the costs of health services, often market themselves much like insurance but fail to deliver when participants encounter expensive medical issues and are in the most need of coverage. These healthcare sharing ministries also typically require participants to agree to specific values based on their faith and to regularly participate in church events. This means that some conditions are not covered, such as diseases caused by tobacco, alcohol, or drug use. Mental health services, contraceptives, Pregnancies carried by unmarried women and, unsurprisingly, abortion are also not covered. These healthcare sharing ministries are endorsed by those who claim to be for life but won't support women who didn't get pregnant in the way they approve. So, not really pro life, more like pro judgment. And some faith based nonprofits that receive government money also want to be able to discriminate based on gender identity. The Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, has recently introduced a new rule that would allow federally funded shelters to deny entry to transgender people based on religious beliefs. And where they are allowed, they could force trans women to share bathrooms and sleeping arrangements with men. HUD has also removed links to resources on their website that inform emergency shelters how to serve trans people and follow agency regulations. Considering that trans people contend with disproportionately high rates of homelessness and trans women are particularly vulnerable to violence, especially trans women of color, this move can't be construed as anything other than an attack on the existence of trans people. Charities, particularly faith-based charities, are most likely to leave out or abandon the most vulnerable in our society, those who are in most need of help. But that gets to the core of why so many conservative Christians support them. It's a way to give help to those they consider to be most deserving, those they don't see as immoral, those they are most comfortable with, 
those who make the choices they approve of, those they are not prejudiced against. But that type of selective morality isn't morality at all. And only supporting the lives of those who live by your standards is not truly supporting life. Her in schools and white evangelical Jesus in government isn't going to fix the problem. Giving to your favorite televangelist children's charity or your church's missions group isn't going to fix the problem. We have to be the change we want to see in this world. And that means supporting real, comprehensive, long-term solutions. Some who oppose abortion say that the point of these laws is that there is value in the government stating it supports life. Besides my contention that opposition to abortion is not an endorsement of life, I also confess that I really have no interest in the government doing what right-wing trolls call virtue signaling. Reclaiming life matters because it makes you look like you care about people, but supporting nothing that actually preserves and protects life. I don't care about messages. I care about actual solutions that, at the end of the day, saves lives. So, at this point, you may be asking, what can we do for real? Support the ACLU and Planned Parenthood, as well as other similar organizations, with money and time. Call and write your elected officials. Be involved in local and state government. This is where the fight is taking place. And you can do a lot of things, whether it's volunteering for local and state campaigns of great candidates or attending and speaking out at hearings and town halls when they have them. And speak up about the right of women to consent, which includes the right to choose abortion. Speak up about these other issues that truly speak to life. Maternal and infant mortality, health care, civil rights for LGBTQ people, gun violence, and especially the poverty, racial extremism, and mental health access issues leading to gun violence. I didn't have a chance to really get into this in this episode, but I would say also speak up about the justice system, from police violence to economic and racial disparities in arrest, convictions, and sentencing, the prison industrial complex, and capital punishment, including the deaths of innocent people by the state. There are so many issues that truly speak to life. Let's work to fix those. And let's support the greatest freedom of all, the right to consent. After such a difficult topic like abortion and these heavy subtopics mixed in, like maternal and infant mortality and mass shootings, you might be looking for a great palate cleanser. And fortunately, I've got a great one for you. Over on the awesome comics podcast, Divisive Issues, Daryl got to choose what book the guys would read and talk about on the podcast. And Daryl chose the 90s comic, Death's Head 2, a Marvel comic near and dear to his heart about a time-traveling, cybernetic assassin with multiple personalities. It's definitely a 90s comic and a product of his time. Ryan, Phil, Daryl, and Sly's take on Death's Head 2. It's a fun analysis and I really enjoyed listening to it. So you should too. The latest in divisive issues. Listen now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Or go to franzradio.com slash divisive issues. And for all of the wonderful podcasts and other great content on Flying Machine, go to flyingmachine.network. Thank you so much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. Did you enjoy the podcast? If you did, Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher, and tell your friends. 
And if you're really liking what you hear, please rate this five stars and leave a review. It only take a couple seconds and it's not for my own pride. It's just to increase our visibility on the charts. And I love hearing from you guys. I'm at PatStirCast on Twitter and at PatStirPodcast on Instagram. So please feel free to reach out. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine.